Welcome to a very extra special episode of the Supercritical Podcast feed. I am Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living. I also enjoy watching movies and overanalyzing them when they portray nuclear weapons in often interesting and, I would say, nonsensical ways. Sometimes I'm able to convince my normal friends with non-nuke jobs to join me for movie night. Other times, I am lucky enough to talk about a slice of nuclear pop culture with my nuke expert colleagues. We are a lot of fun at parties, trust me. That is why it was such a pleasure to be a guest on an awesome, relatively new podcast called Authors of Mass Destruction which is run by Dr. Natasha Bajma, an expert for over 18 years on national security, emerging technologies, and other WMD topics, which she has taught at the National Defense University, including a course on WMD in film. Natasha is also a fiction author who shares my interest in seeing compelling stories about WMD events, but also getting the facts right. So listeners of the Supercritical Podcast will feel right at home with her show that interviews experts on weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies, as well as interviews with authors and writers. And particularly relevant to the episode that I am releasing in the podcast feed today, her show talks about what movies get right and wrong about nukes. That's why when Natasha invited me to join Dr. Justin Anderson of the National Defense University to talk about a film that is dear to all of our hearts, I jumped at the opportunity. And that film... Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This conversation was a lot of fun, and I've got a pretty good feeling that listeners of the Supercritical podcast will enjoy it too. I will still personally try to release a regular episode of the Supercritical podcast in April of this year, but uh, a lot of that depends on being able to find time in this weirdly busy month at my regular day job uh, and being able to find time to schedule a guest, but I'll do my best. I'm also still planning on doing a Supercritical podcast episode on Dr. Strangelove, maybe even a multi-part series, but that project remains classified until further details are locked in. Enjoy this episode, which you can find by searching on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast for the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, as well as the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you want to follow Natasha and her work on Twitter, check out at WMDGirl and Authors Mass. That's Authors M-A-S-S. Have a good one. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number eight of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Each week, I'll kick off the episode with technology news headline that has caught my attention that week, and I hope to also answer listener questions. If you're interested in submitting a question to the show, become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon at www.patreon forward slash Natasha Bajma. I want to uh, take a few minutes to thank my first four patrons. Um, I'm so thankful to them. Renee DeVries, Dan Lee, Tim Westmeyer, Darren Kogan. Your support means so much and it makes this podcast possible. Um, if you, In addition to my time, there are hosting and marketing costs associated with the show 
Every little bit helps to help me continue doing the show. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. My headline for this week comes from uh, Patrick Tucker at Defense One, the newest AI-enabled weapon, deep faking photos of the Earth. The article was published on March 31 in Defense One. So first off, what are deepfakes? By now you've heard plenty about photos being expertly photoshopped so you can't tell which photo is the original. Modifying photos can be used to deceive and manipulate and distort what is true and factual. And you've also heard about doctored videos intentionally manipulated to revise the truth and shape public opinion. But now we're entering an era of deep fakes. Uh, for the past few years, experts have warned about videos generated by machine learning tools. Um, these videos would contain uh, clips of world leaders and celebrities saying and doing things that they didn't say or do. And that has very, very huge implications for um, basically the truth. Uh, how do we know what's real and what's not? In this article, Patrick Tucker reports on how China is using generative adversarial networks to trick computers into seeing objects in landscapes or in satellite images that aren't there. So what does this mean? More and more, we're depending on machine learning tools to support human decision-making. Take, for example, a machine learning tool designed to evaluate the content of satellite imagery photos. In the past, we have um, humans do that, and it's very um, challenging uh, work, takes a lot of time, it takes specialized expertise. So it's, it's really um, fantastic to be able to get a machine learning tool to do the work uh, instead of humans. But in order to do that, the tool needs to be trained on very extensive and, and I mean, lots of data, um, and the data has to be labeled. So very, very large data sets. Um, these are highly valuable data sets because um, obviously without them you can't train machine learning tools and you can't gain the efficiency from the machine learning tools. So it's not surprising that other countries might be tempted to interfere with our ability to collect intelligence uh, from surveillance imagery by feeding such a machine learning tool bad data. Basically, that's what a generative adversarial network does. It essentially tricks our machine learning tools um, with bad data, changing the algorithm and generating bad outcomes. We can fight deep fakes by using machine learning tools to, for example, detect real videos versus fake ones. But according to Tucker, this is far trickier to do with landscape imagery. Um, it's time consuming and costly and there's some technical issues. Um, so this is a big problem, um, and data integrity is a rising concern among national security policy policymakers. Uh, many reasons for this, we're growing increasingly dependent on machine learning tools, and these tools depend on valid data for training. So if policymakers depend on machine learning tools to help them with decision-making, and the underlying data was bad, or the algorithm has gone awry due to adversarial tampering, then we'll start drawing the wrong conclusions. Um, and this is a major issue for national security. This story is also incredibly pertinent to my interview today with Justin Anderson and Timothy Westmeyer. We're talking about nuclear deterrence and Dr. Strangelove. And you'll hear in the interview, we talk about how deterrence relies upon clear communication and accurate perception of information between the two sides. And we're entering this new era for nuclear deterrence in which we must ask questions about the impact of social media, 
deep fakes and other issues that might undermine this really important key pillar of communication. Hey everyone, welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm with Justin Anderson, Senior Research Fellow at the National Defense University, and Timothy Westmeyer, Project Lead at CRDF and host of the Super Critical Podcast. Both are experts on deterrence and arms control, and today we are talking about nuclear deterrence as portrayed through the film Dr. Strangelove, which was produced, directed, and written by Stanley Kubrick. Justin, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks very much, Natasha. Glad to be here. It's great to be on the program, WMD girl. Can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's a Sunday morning and we're talking deterrence. What could yeah. possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> According to the movie, pretty much everything. So, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is one of my favorite films. Um, uh, and I believe in, in how I sell it to my class is everything you need to know about nuclear deterrence is captured by Dr. Strangelove. And I think that just signifies the brilliance and foresight of Stanley Kubrick. And Tim, I know from Twitter that you've been doing a lot of background research on how and why Stanley Kubrick created the film. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so Stanley Kubrick made this movie uh, pretty much basically because he was afraid of nuclear war. Uh, it got to the point where he was living in New York City at the time. He was about to move his family to London. And he said, you know, why don't we move to Australia? Because at least we're not in a target range. Uh, I think that might have been before he saw the movie On the Beach. But he, so he, he was very worried about this. And, you know, Stanley Kubrick, one of the things he does is when he gets an idea for a movie, he pretty much obsessively reads about it, uh, everything he possibly could. And, you know, not like a magazine here or there. He read 70 books uh, on, on this issue, and he, when he was in London, he asked for help from the Institute for Strategic Studies in London, and they recommended a number of books, uh, some more dry books like The Effects of Nuclear Weapons, Soviet Military Policy, uh, On Thermonuclear War by Herman Kahn, Jane's Defense Weekly. But one of the other books he, that he got recommended was a novel written by a, a RAF officer, former navigator, intel officer called Red Alert. And it told a more or less the basic story of Dr. Strangelove, but it was very serious. It was about a, uh, a military commander, uh, in, in the U.S. military commander, who knew that the Soviet Union was about to get ICBMs in a couple of weeks. So they said, look, once they get them, the Soviets are terrible. They're awful people. They're going to be inherently violent. This is what my history shows. Uh, they're going to attack us. We need to attack them now because we have the ability to do it. And then that, that was the story. And... Uh, Stanley Kubrick loved it. He paid $3,500 to buy the script uh, and this, and, or the rights to it. He worked with the a number of different people, including that author, to write the story that we have now. It was originally a, a serious movie. Then it became a comedy. Then it became a serious movie again and back to a comedy. So I'll stop there. But he wrote the movie because he was afraid of, of nuclear war and tried wanted to tell this story. Yeah, I love that he made it a comedy. I read somewhere that um, basically they started drinking, and I think the more beer they drank, <laughs> the more absurd the um, script became. And then um, I think had a conversation, could they make a comedy? And actually, that was quite controversial in the 1960s to make a comedy about nuclear war. Did you read anything about that discussion at all? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Columbia Pictures, the people who eventually uh, distributed the film, were very, very not excited about this idea. They, they were saying that, uh, I think Mo Rothman, who was the, the executive producer on it, said, uh, New York City is not does not think anything is funny about the end of the world. Uh, and it was, a very, it was pretty controversial. It was a few years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. People were pretty... Um, you know, afraid of these topics. It was a fairly taboo topic. And they weren't just concerned about nuclear war. They were concerned that the movie would come across as anti-American, pro-communist, anti-U.S. military, which was a very sensitive subject at the time. Um, but, you know, one interesting counterpoint that I that I was reading here is uh, in, in a Gallup poll of American citizens in 1959, 64% of them thought that nuclear war was an urgent problem. But just a few years later, in 1964, that number dropped to 16%. So it was both a sensitive topic, but it was also one that, oddly enough, was not on the the direct kind of point of people's minds, which I think is why Stanley Kubrick wanted to do this movie. Uh, one quote from him is about how he was very concerned that there was, quote, uh, people's l- virtually listless acqui- acquiescence to the possibility, in fact, increasing prob- probability of nuclear war. So I think he thought... This was a very interesting moment in American history, and uh, we really wanted to have a film like this come out. That's interesting that there was even apathy back then. I think that is a, a yeah. concern that we have today, is that despite the current, the still existence of thousands of nuclear weapons, um, that the American people and, and, and even people around the world just aren't thinking about the threat and taking it seriously. Um, so shifting topics, so this film really... It, it, it takes place in 1960, well, it, takes, it was released in 1964 during a really important decade for the development of the concept of nuclear deterrence. And Justin, I, I'd like you to talk about, you know, what, what is deterrence and what are some of the underlying assumptions necessary for it to succeed? Right. And uh, first of all, uh, Natasha, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were drinking vodka and rainwater rather than beer <laughs> when they shifted this from a, a dramatic film to a nightmare comedy. Um, but uh, let me begin by <clears throat> giving the disclaimer that I think is required of uh, you and me, which uh, my views are my own. They're not those of the Department of Defense or of National Defense University. So to deterrence, there's a great quote in, in the film, and I won't try to uh, do it in Peter Sellers as Dr. Strangelove uh, in, in that uh, faux accent that is so hilarious. But as Dr. Strangelove uh, is talking about deterrence, he says it's, it's really about fear. It's about the fear of attack, uh, putting into the mind of the enemy the fear of attack. And it's a great uh, pithy description of deterrence. I would just add uh, to that that the concept of deterrence is about uh, putting into the mind of an adversary that the costs of initiating an attack will far outweigh the uh, uncertain benefits that will be derived from that attack. And within the context of uh, a nuclear uh, deterrence, as it operates between a couple parties, um, there's the concept of if you are to launch a attack, launch a nuclear attack against your opponent, uh, you're deterred, you're prevented from doing so because you fear that your adversary's counterattack will be so devastating that it makes the initial, uh, the initial attack, the initial first strike, um, just not worth it. So this is where you get the dynamic of concerns about uh, a first strike 
or really actually putting into the mind of an adversary that if they conduct a first strike against you, your second strike, your nuclear response will be so devastating that that initial attack isn't worth it. And I just add a couple other things. One is that, you know, in 1964, when the film comes out, you're talking about a, um, a class of military and political leaders in the United States that really came of age during the Second World War. So this concept of a surprise attack, a Pearl mm -hmm. Harbor-like attack, is one that uh, really resonates and is a, a real a significant concern for U.S. military and political leadership. So that's one of the places where you get this, this worry about a, a surprise attack, a sneak attack, as General Turgidson puts it, um, and a desire to try to have a nuclear force and a nuclear posture, and posture refers to sort of how ready your force is and it's the disposition of your force, that it's prepared uh, in such a way that that surprise attack couldn't be conducted by the Soviet Union in any sort of fashion where they wouldn't uh, face a devastating counter-response from the U.S. Wow, uh, that was a really articulate um, way to explain uh, the whole situation, I think, that underlies this film. Um, but I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about some of the key elements of deterrence, like rationality, credibility, and right. communication perception. Because if any one of those fail, deterrence right. fails. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I can turn to uh, joint staff documents that are uh, in place today. And what we talk about are three C's of deterrence. So uh, uh, not my formulation, but one that exists in, uh, in doctrine at, at present. And those three C's are capability, credibility, and communication. So the capability is that you have the no kidding uh, forces, the, the no kidding uh, uh, deterrent uh, power of nuclear weapons. Your capability is such that a, an adversary uh, knows that you actually do have an arsenal that's capable of reaching them and is capable of uh, causing a great deal of damage, a great deal of punishment to them. So capability is the first C of deterrence. Uh, the second is credibility. So if you have a great deal of capability, but your adversary doesn't believe you would use it in extremis, in a, in a crisis or in an actual no-kidding conflict, then it doesn't matter how much capability you have. It doesn't matter how many missiles or bombers you have. If they believe you're not going to use it, that you're going to you're going to hesitate or flinch in the, in the face of uh, Armageddon, then you don't have a credible deterrent. So credibility is the second C, and then the third C, uh, really important, and uh, it's fascinating how Dr. Strangelove deals with all of these, but. In particular, and I think we might uh, address it a little bit later, the third C is communication. So that's the idea that if an adversary thinks that you have capability to strike them, and they are concerned that you might use it uh, within some sort of crisis or conflict, it still matters for the purposes of deterrence that you're able to communicate. You're able to communicate your strategy and your posture and, and frankly, just how you're reacting to a crisis that you're able to communicate with an opponent. Because if you're not able to message to them what you in, you're capable of doing, what you intend to do, and especially if things get really hairy, uh, what you're actually prepared to do, then uh, deterrence may not operate 
in a way that is uh, useful or, or stabilizing or prevents an adversary uh, from doing something rash. So the three C's, cap capability, credibility, and communication, these are all vital elements of deterrence and all portrayed in a really fascinating way within Strangelove. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that um, introduction. Okay, let's let's get to the film because I think this is what yeah. um, people are probably looking uh, waiting for. Um, warning: We're about to spoil a film Spoilers. that was released in 1964. So if you haven't watched it, stop here, watch it, and then you can listen to the rest of this. Um, so Tim, why don't you kind of set the scene for us? How does the crisis ensue in Doctor Strangelove? Sure. Uh, so uh, you know. It, 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 it struck me a little bit as interesting. So hearing Justin describe deterrence and the theory behind deterrence very eloquently, you know, I, oh, I, I, I was reading quite a bit about, um, you know, Kubrick's process of writing this film. And, you know, he he uh, he interviewed, he read, he actually, I guess, used to be drinking friends with Herman Kahn, one of the <laughs> early, early strategists from the Bland Corporation. I mean, the, the Rand Corporation. Um, in terms, and, and, you know, and Herman Kahn was known for being a very, uh, colorful figure, um, someone who prided himself on the ability to talk about deterrence in a way that, in nuclear war fighting, in a way that stripped out the moral considerations and just focused on objective realities. If you do this, you're left with 100 million dead. If you do this, you're left with 50. Obviously, 50 is better, so let's proceed this path. And, and Herman Kahn's whole idea was to create a vocabulary that allowed the average American person around their dinner table, uh, <laughs> depending if it paired well with whatever you were eating that day, to talk about <laughs> nuclear war. And Kubrick thought that that was absurd. Uh, you know, he, he, he would he would probably listen to what Justin would say and say, this is absurd. It's it's nightmarish. You can't possibly talk about these things. So the scenario that he tried to create for this film was was difficult for him. He tried to find a way to have a nuclear uh, crisis, but not make it seem as absurd as what he felt was just a reality of of these things. So he, he really thought about, do I have it um, be it like it is in the book where the person, the, the commander is just concerned about deterrence breakdown or some similar treatments he had. He had, well, what if we make it a Russian commander? No, no, we really want to make it a, a U.S. person. What if it's a false alert, like a, a missile scare that is actually not an incoming attack? He was That was one of his considerations. But what he ended up on was uh, a failure of human reliability programs. The idea that there was this individual, uh, General Jack D. Ripper, Jack Ripper, uh, he was so concerned about the Soviet Union and, and, and communist uh, conspiracies that he saw everywhere in the water, uh, everything affecting him and his person, that the only way to stop it was to uh, exceed his command authority, use his pre-delegation authority, the allowance uh, to be able to launch under what he thought, what, you know, what he's describing as warning. You know, we are already under attack. The president has been wiped out. Uh, according to what they call Plan R, I now have the ability to launch, order my command, my my B-52 command to go attack targets in the Soviet Union. And it was all his idea. Look, once the attack's underway, there's no way to recall them. I have the recall code. Therefore, the United States has to, because of the scenario that, uh, you know, that, that Justin laid out, they, they, they need to demonstrate credibility. They need to demonstrate their capability. And at this point, communication is not going to matter because we're already in a shooting war. The U.S. will go full attack to wipe out the Soviet Union at that point where they, that surprise attack is still there and capable. So that's kind of the scenario uh, that, we, that we have here. There's one slip up of the HRP program and, uh, 
and everybody springs into action trying to respond to General Jack D. Ripper's uh, order. So the Human Reliability Program um, is intended to determine whether um, people who have control over nuclear weapons or other sensitive programs are not crazy or blackmailable, et cetera, et cetera, um, so that they are, are they can be trusted with such a huge responsibility. And unfortunately for the film, mm -hmm. um, General Ripper uh, was a little cuckoo. Um, so he envisioned this conspiracy of the Soviet Union that they were already um, secretly poisoning our water supply um, using fluoride. And that was the reason why he, he launched this Plan R. But let's talk a little bit more about Plan R. Justin, could you tell us why why in the world you would have a Plan R that pre-delegated authority to lower-level right. commanders to launch a nuclear attack? Why was it critical for deterrence? And then what went wrong in the movie? <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a lot there. So uh, let me see if I could break it down. So uh, the reason to have a, a plan R where there are bombers in the air already armed with nuclear weapons that are uh, waiting a, a go message uh, to then go and take, uh, take their bombs to attack the Soviet Union. The reason you have uh, bombers always at the ready uh, to do that is because you have a concern that your opponent with their own nuclear force could try to initiate a sneak attack, a first strike, that would take out uh, either your command and control in the form of uh, the president and, and the Pentagon, and also your own nuclear forces in the form of bomber bases and uh, the relatively new, at that point, ICBM force. The ICBM force comes online, first ICBMs come online for the U.S. Uh, in 1959, for the Soviet Union the year before that. So if you have a concern that your own nuclear force is vulnerable to this, then you want some sort of means uh, to have the attack uh, launched, even, even if you get hit. And, uh, you know, Cooper had really done his homework. Uh, Rand, uh, especially, and others had had a concern uh, early within the, uh, the U.S. nuclear program that um, the U.S. nuclear force posture might be vulnerable to this. Now, one of the reasons uh, why this was initially a concern was because the early bomber fleet was really reliant on bombers that were uh, in airfields closer to the Soviet Union um, because the bombers didn't have the range uh, or the refueling ca uh, capacity uh, to take off from the United States and hit the Soviet Union or to just be in the air. But um, a little later in the Cold War, that capability did exist. And, you know, this is where uh, one of many places Kubrick really does his homework uh, the Strategic Air Command actually begins airborne alert in 1958. So from 1958 uh, onwards, uh, to include Operation Chrome Dome, which might be uh, familiar to, uh, to, to some uh, listeners, was sort of the, uh, the um, epitome of this, uh, this effort. There that, are sounds always, like, that sounds like the name of something that Stanley Kubrick would add to Dr. Strangelove. He would have loved uh, <laughs> Chrome. Chrome Dome. Um, you know, so for years, the U.S. always has bombers, B-52s, in the air, loaded with weapons that are prepared uh, to, uh, to go strike the Soviet Union. In, in, in some cases, this would require refueling uh, be beforehand at some point. But um, these aircraft are always, uh, always there, ready to strike the Soviet Union. So um, 
you know, one other thing that I would note is these were these were 24-hour missions. Uh, I mean, these were really, uh, really tough missions for these aircraft and crews to fly. And in fact, there were cases where this this created a it created a problem with um, with uh, aircraft uh, crashing or having difficulty with refueling. So it was a, a posture that wasn't without risk. And I'm not even talking about the risk uh, as depicted in the film mm-hmm. that perhaps someone would give a, a command uh, that wasn't authorized by the president. Um, but the posture itself had some risk. Uh, so let me then go to the um, the uh, the part of the film that's talking about authority that goes to lower echelons, lower than the president. So it's worth noting that this is not something we still do uh, and, and haven't for a while. Um, the authority to release, uh, to command uh, nuclear weapons is vested entirely in the, in the president at, at present. But during the Cold War, and again, uh, Kubrick had read up on this, during the Cold War, for uh, quite some time, the authority existed first down to uh, what were then the regional commander-in-chief, in so uh, commander-in-chief, sink commander-in-chief, uh, Europe and other places, the authority to um, use nuclear weapons, if we had been attacked, we just suffered a first strike, uh, was delegated down to those commanders, and then that authority was also delegated down to the commanders of things like numbered air forces. And even beyond that, although it's a little bit of a separate matter, um, even lower echelons, the uh, forces in Europe that had things like nuclear artillery, even lower echelons mm-hmm. had the authority to use their nuclear weapons. Now we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons, smaller than the ones depicted in the movie. They had the authority if they were about to be overrun by Soviet Warsaw Pact forces in Europe. So uh, the, the, the issue of whether, in order to ensure that our deterrent was credible, again, because of a concern that we could be overrun or knocked out with a sneak attack, um, the delegation down to lower echelons was something that happened during the Cold War. So while there's certainly fantastical elements uh, to Strange Love, uh, this wasn't one of them. When the film was released in 1964, this kind of authority would have existed with commanders of uh, numbered air forces. Um, if indeed they said, look, we're, about, we, we're getting hit by the Soviet Union, they're, they're trying to take us out, they're trying to win uh, World War III, uh, they had the authority to, com- uh, you know, to tell these aircraft, again, which are in the air loaded with weapons, to launch an attack. So what I love about the film um, is that not only does it address these kind of high-level issues as you laid out, but it also delves deep into how deterrence could fail in, in operationalization of some of these high-level things in just the mechanics of things. Mm-hmm. So what ultimately happens is they launch Plan R, the bombers move forward to their, their intended targets to deliver their nuclear weapons. In order to call them back, they have to do that through a very special code through the radio there so that they know that it's not the Soviets getting on the line and telling them to call the, the, it back, that that order is indeed coming from an authorized commander. And what happens is that plane gets hit um, by the Soviets and the radio malfunctions and so there was one plane in this in this alert force that could not be recalled and so i that that's a great part of the film he stanley kubert really gets it right at the highest level but down to how could it fail 
um, at the mechanical level. So changing tact a little bit. Um, so we have now uh, a bomber squadron heading for the Soviet Union to deliver their nuclear weapons at the intended targets in the Soviet Union. We can't call at least, well, we, we might be able to call them back at this time. But General Turgidson, let's go to the war room, pan to the war room. Um, he offers to President Muffley what he thinks is the most rational response to this crisis. Tim, what did he recommend? Uh, so he breaks out his World Targets in Megadeths binder, which uh, I, I was I jokingly wrote down here that uh, that sounds like something Leslie Nope would make uh, for Halloween. Uh, so he, he breaks out his binder and he uh, channels his Herman Kahn, his best Herman Kahn impression, and talks about uh, two different but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments, one where 100 million people are killed and one where there's 10 to 20 million people killed, depending on the breaks. Uh, and, and this is really just a direct quote from a chart that was in On Thermonuclear War, this uh, very controversial but very widely read uh, and, you know, I, I think ultimately, uh, you know, taken up most of the ideas into uh, U.S. war planning. The, this chart was called Tragic but Distinguishable Post-War States, and it had one column uh, on the left that showed the number of dead from two, up to two, from 2 million to up to 160 million, and the other showed the time that required for economic recuperation. So how long would it take to recover from that much loss? And it went from one year to 100 years. And I think the, the point of this idea is, is that, well, you know, which which one would necessarily would be better? Um, because there's always this thought in a lot of scholars and thinkers, people like Jonathan Schell, uh, who wrote these, uh, you know, I, I think personally amazing books about uh, what it's like to live after a nuclear war. And, uh, you know, will the survivors envy the dead? You know, Herman Kahn took that and said, you know, no, they'll be alive. It'll be great. It's better than one scenario versus the other. So I think that was the argument that, that Turgidson, I love the names in this movie, uh, Turgidson made essentially an argument that you'd rather, you know, we are where we are. We wish this didn't happen, although I think Turgidson is pretty generally happy with what's going on. You'd rather attack the Soviet Union with all, with all of the U.S. force, take out as many of their retaliatory capabilities as possible. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Turgidson doesn't talk about that. That means hitting a lot of Soviet cities where things are co-located. It means a lot of different types of attacks. But if you do that, it means that the U.S. will survive, you know, with only 20 million people killed, that's better than 100 million people killed. Therefore, we should go right ahead. But, you know, I, I think fortunately, at least uh, so far in the movie, uh, the president decides, no, that is not the only choice that we have. We have other things to do. And that's when he brings in the Soviet ambassador, uh, Ambassador Sadisky. Uh, which I think is supposed to be some joke about sadist, sadist activities. But, uh, yeah, he brings him into the war room, which is not something Turgidson is too keen on. Yeah, so um, so General Turgidson, as you said, basically turns a, an accidental launch by an irrational general um, into the potential for a surprise attack against the Soviet Union, something that General Turgidson obviously has been dreaming about uh, for, for many, many years. Um, because, as you said, if we don't launch our full force against the Soviet Union, they'll launch their full force against us. So we'll lose a lot more people than if we, we take the surprise attack approach. As you mentioned, President Muffley rejects this absurd uh, notion and instead invites the Soviet ambassador of all things into the war room, the most sensitive of spaces. 
Um, Justin, why would the president do that? What what is it? What about <laughs> deterrence makes that so necessary? Yeah, he'll see the big board. Um, <laughs> It's, it's necessary because, as I noted before, communication actually is a, um, a vital part of deterrence, that if you lack the ability to communicate to the other side uh, what you're prepared to do, then deterrence uh, can't uh, operate in a, in a stabilizing fashion. So I think that's the important part. That's and also what you're prepared not to do. And what you're prepared not to do. Absolutely, Tim. So... It um, it's necessary in the president's mind, in President Muffley's mind, that he have a Soviet ambassador there because things have already gone badly wrong, and it's a matter of well, how much can you mitigate now this this crisis or this conflict? So actually, I'd, I would argue that deterrence has sort of failed, uh, or kind of a mechanical and uh, and personnel failure of deterrence. Uh, and now, really, the president is in sort of a, a, a crisis mitigation mode. Um, you know, it's also really interesting to compare this film to Failsafe. Uh, comes out in the same year, and you see a, a president there. Admittedly, that's a straight drama, not a nightmare comedy. You know, uh, attempting to come up with a way to resolve this crisis. Uh, let me just briefly say that you know it's really interesting that in 1964, January 64, the movie comes out. The U.S.-Soviet uh, Union hotline agreement had only existed uh, for a few months. And in fact, uh, that hotline, so this was the one means of secure um, sort of constant communication between the two sides. It wasn't the red telephones. Nothing like that existed. You were talking about things like teletype between the Pentagon and the Kremlin. Um, so we're actually still uh, relatively early in the ability of the two sides to communicate with one another under all circumstances. And even that communication is between the two military headquarters, and it's, it's not voice communication. Um, so, you know, it's sort of interesting to speculate. Uh, let's say that in the world of strange love, the hotline agreement exists. I wouldn't be surprised if a president in a crisis was like, even that isn't sufficient. I don't just want to teletype between mm -hmm. the two military HQs. Um, I really need the ambassador here right with me and, and with my, uh, uh, my command staff because otherwise I don't think that my, uh, my messaging and communication will be taken uh, as fully credible by the other side. Or, as happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when you're looking at a message, even a message from the other head of state, and it's just on a piece of paper, it's just kind of words on a page, it's really hard to tell what their state of mind is when they communicated that message. So the more sort of intrapersonal the communication can be, uh, the more important it is for trying to resolve the crisis. Which is it's really fascinating because I know one of the thoughts behind not doing a red telephone but doing a teletape mm -hmm. was so that you would not get that emotional right. – uh, you know, feeling into it, and also translation and simultaneous right. interpretation is very difficult. So the idea was, what well, this is a better way to to communicate. I would have loved to have seen uh, maybe a version of Doctor Strangelove, but with teletape or teletype. <laughs> teletype uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that that would have been really funny. Um, but you know, one one little thing I'll add here is is that in the book Red Alert, there is that communication link between the two, and a lot of people. Uh, who were who were scholars, including Thomas Shell, uh, Thomas Schelling, uh, really liked that idea, and then was one of the one of the reasons why we have 
the system that eventually developed that came out at the same time as the year of the movie uh, was because of the Red Alert. I think it's kind of a fun little connection there. To bring up, um, I know one of Justin's favorite films of all time is The Sum of All Fears. Oh, um, man. <laughs> they do it right. I'm, I like I'm, 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 being, I'm being live, live streamed trolled I know, by uh, totally my colleague. Right. Uh, <laughs> I like that movie a lot. If I recall correctly, in the National Military Command Center, Ben Affleck actually, <laughs> they bring back the teletype because I was like printed messages that they were trying to decipher. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry, Justin. I, I know. I, 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 should, uh, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so let's talk about, because another facet of communication, of course, comes up. So the solution they ultimately reach is that the Soviets will shoot down the planes. Unfortunately, they, they shoot that one and it only gets damaged and the radio gets damaged so they can't call it back. Point of clarification, uh, people, for you two who have seen the movie uh, quite a bit, do you think that that was a uh, air defense using a nuclear weapon or an air defense mm. with the regular conventional force? I've always thought about that, and I've tried to get different opinions on it, because it explodes yeah. a mile away. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking, because those existed, having, like, the U.S. had the Nike missile air defense system that was designed to destroy incoming Soviet bombers uh, over, you know, in tiny little print, over Canadian territory with nuclear weapons. Um, And eventually they didn't do that because a couple of different reasons, but also Canada didn't like it so much. What do you think about that scene? I would say it was conventional. I don't think it's the smartest thing to detonate nuclear weapons over your own territory, Justin. (laughs) <laughs> oh, but they were ready to do it. Soviet air defenses, uh, including those around Moscow, um, had uh, this concept that Tim just described, which you would, uh, and in fact, it was their theory theory and practice of missile defense as well. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Soviet missile defense system around Moscow depended on uh, you know, anti-ballistic missiles armed with um with uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapons, essentially, because the idea was it's too hard to hit a, with the technology of the time a missile with a missile. So you know you use a, a, a nuclear blast to try to knock it out of the air. That's a fascinating qu- question, Tim. And now that you've raised it, I never thought about it before. Well, that's what they do I'm, in I'm, failsafe. In yeah, failsafe, I, it's an air defense with a nuclear I, weapon. I might lean toward a a nuclear weapon because uh, you're right. In the movie, they say it. They, they they put in like it's a mile away or something like that. So maybe it really it was a nuke because then uh, the the blast wave uh, perhaps is what helps damage the aircraft. Um, so that's a fascinating question. I don't know. That's definitely an interesting point. And again, you know, highlights uh, just the absurdity of nuclear deterrence during the Cold War that you would put your population at risk. Um, yeah, in that way. So back to the communication issue um, because. Uh, the the amazing solution that they ended up coming up with um, didn't end up working because of something called the doomsday machine. <laughs> so, Tim, perhaps you could talk about where this idea of the doomsday machine came from, and 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 then maybe Justin, you can talk about what its role is in nuclear deterrence and how, how that all went wrong. So, Tim, go ahead. Sure. Uh, again, much like the the Mo Link, the the Moscow uh, Washington hotline link. Uh, this idea came from the Red Alert book by Peter George, uh, who was an RAF officer. He had a lot of great information about you know, their their version of Strategic Air Command and how things worked. Uh, it was one of the reasons why the, the military was not happy about Kubrick's movie, because they figured that Kubrick had intel sources 
that were having classified information. And he was like, no, the RAF officer just happened to, you know, publishing rights and secrecy issues were a lot less uh, strict in the UK than they were in the United States. Plus, Kubrick looked in magazines like Jane's Defense Weekly and things like that. And that's where he got all the pictures for setting up the interior of the bombers and things like that. So Red Alert was a great source of information about this idea. It was a little bit different. In the, in the in the book versus uh, in reality, uh, I think in the book it wasn't an automatic. So what the, what the doomsday machine in the movie is, if if it looks like the Soviet Union anywhere is look like it's a, being attacked by a, a nuclear weapon, it automatically triggers detonations uh, around the world, mostly like in the Arctic and parts of Siberia. It detonates this these underground bombs, huge bombs, probably like 100, 200 megaton bombs that it didn't matter they weren't deployable but you could build them on your own territory they'll explode they're probably jacketed or laced with uh what they call cobalt thorium g which is something that would salt the bomb so that it would create a shroud of uh really dangerous radioactivity and within a for hundreds of hundred years so basically you hit us we don't even have to calculate whether or not we're going to deter. You don't have to worry about whether or not our Soviet uh, premier is drunk at the time and can't issue the order. You don't have to worry about if the people in the bunker is going to have a, 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 a fight within their own conscience, their good side, bad side, if they're going to hit the button, flip the trigger. No, it's just automatic. Don't even try. And this idea came from her, from the Red Alert book, but then Herman Kahn in On Thermonuclear War used it as a teaching tool, a device where he, he argued ultimately against it, but he thought about as a way to think about deterrence. And then from there, uh, Herman Kahn was the one who actually named it Doomsday Device. So that's kind of where those things come from. I've always thought it seems a little bit odd because uh, what if there was an accident? Some of those accidents that Justin talked about with Strategic Air Command and having a high alert status, what happens if on the Russian side one of their weapons is not quote-unquote one-point safe? Uh, if, if, it, if it accidentally detonates because a, it drops from the airplane or if a hit a, a light piece of lightning hits it and causes it to explode, would that trigger the doomsday device? You know, it's an accident. But I think that was the reasons why Herman Kahn and also in the movie, the literal Dr. Strangelove decided against it. So that's kind of the idea behind this system. But it is uh, simply not a system that is only on the fiction pages that actually more or less existed in some capacity in real life. But I don't know if Justin or someone else wants to cover that side. Yeah, I think to uh, first answer Natasha your question, um, the reason one might consider something like a doomsday device is uh, to go back to what we were saying earlier, which is uh, to deter an opponent, to prevent them from attacking you, you want them to believe that the consequences will be, will be certain and terrible. And the doomsday device does that uh, because there, as Tim noted, it doesn't actually rely on any any people within the film. It talks about, uh, I think, supercomputers, and there's a sense uh, that it, it will be fully automatic. Um, so if you have something like that, then an opponent will not just hesitate; they will they will completely uh, stop themselves from attacking you because uh, those consequences are so dire and, and so certain. Um, so to go back to your question, actually earlier question, though, because it's, it's illustrated beautifully in the film, this is where communication is really mm. important. There's that great sequence where Strangelove's talking about the doomsday device, 
And then he says, what? why didn't you tell the world, eh? <laughs> you had this device, but if you don't tell anyone, it can't deter because we <laughs> don't know that you have it. You mm-hmm. haven't communicated that. And it's a, you know, it's a great exchange because the ambassador says, well, he was about to. You, you, you know the premiere. Uh, he, he, he loves uh, surprises. He loves theater. Uh, <laughs> he, he wanted to give this big announcement about the Doomsday device. Um, and so the uh, Doomsday device is a, a really fascinating. It's a really fascinating concept for the purposes of deterrence. Um, and uh, just briefly, uh, if you've read, I'll just recommend. If you haven't read, listeners of this pod, go read the Dead Hand, and you'll read about uh, a device called Perimeter, which indeed the Soviet Union had. Uh, not quite the Doomsday device of the movie. Mm-hmm. But a a no kidding dead hand, i.e. a way of uh, having an automatic response uh, or more or less automatic response if the Soviet Union's uh, leadership um, was was knocked out in some kind of uh, U.S. first strike. So go read the dead hand, read about the perimeter system, and you'll hear why this wasn't uh, you know completely crazy crazy idea inter- as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Yeah, book by David Hoffman. Yes. yes, and it's it's actually mm-hmm. very accessible to read. Um, he's yep. a journalist, and he does a fantastic job. So this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. I want to kind of close on the note of, you know, the movie got so much right, but um, there was one thing in particular that the movie got wrong. And Justin, you and I have discussed this. Do you want to yep. illuminate? Um, well, why don't why don't you uh, why don't you preface uh, this? Uh, it's between the ballistic missiles and the bombers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you give a preface and then I'll follow. Okay. So um, Red Alert, uh, I think, and and Tim, you can uh, say a little bit about this. I, I believe that it was about ballistic missiles and not bombers. Is that correct? Uh, they, were, they, they were concerned about Russian ICBMs that were about to come online, but it still largely had uh, to do with um, bombers. Yes, but in the film, there was no discussion, absolutely, of ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. And the introduction of ballistic missiles into the nuclear equation fundamentally changes everything. Justin, do you want to talk about that? Yes. So uh, you have a a problem as a a screenwriter and a director Mm -hmm. in that ICBMs, um, from a relatively early point in the history of ICBMs, you're talking about a timeline of 30 minutes or so between an ICBM uh, actually taking off and then hitting the other side, and there's no recall. Uh, so once those missiles leave, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and also, the decision to launch the missiles was uh, only within a time frame, a window of a few minutes. So uh, the entire uh, sort of world of, of the movie of Strange Love uh, doesn't quite work when you're talking about ballistic missiles because you, you just don't have any time to really discuss what's going to happen. And you can't go through a process of trying to recall the bombers. So the bombers are going to take a, a lot longer than that to go reach their ta- their targets or even have the kind of discussion within the war room with the Soviet ambassador. Uh, so you can certainly have a very dramatic movie um, or a very dramatic uh, you know, episode of Cold War uh, brinkmanship and crisis, but it's going to operate in a different way, which is just harder for the purposes of showing the different personalities and the back and forth uh, and, and sort of uh, the, 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 dra- the dramatic comedy of the movie, which really builds you know, sequentially over time in, in a way that's really fascinating. 
But uh, even in 1964, probably a nuclear crisis wouldn't have operated in that way. You would have had a much shorter movie. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <TV> episode. <laughs> I think I think that that's a great explanation. It shows the inherent tension between you know trying to convey a story in a in in a two hour or ninety minute film because back then it was still a ninety minutes. Now it's much more acceptable yeah. to do a two hour film, and the the time frame for decision making thirty minutes is just not a lot of time. Tim, you want to say something? Uh, well, I just want to add one more thing here is is that you know another place that the movie gets a little bit wrong is it. And there were actually not recall codes once bombers passed what they called in the film their their fair safe point. So if you launch a bomber and then you have it go to its target, it's basically a a point of no return, you know, a a certain area. Uh, The idea was they would go to those areas and then if they if they heard another like go ahead order, then they would proceed with their targets. Otherwise, if they don't hear anything, they'll return back. That's the that was the thought. That was the idea that. Albert Wolstetter created about positive and negative control, and oh well, that's that's that that's the way to solve this problem. But you know, once bombers were given the go order, they actually there was no process in place for them to be recalled ever. There was they would they would break open, you know, you see it in the movie, they break open safes and they get the codes and they they run through everything about what their targets are. There was no equivalent for recall or abort, and this is something that David Ellsberg puts in his book, you know, aptly named Doomsday Machine. Um, you know, the former war planner, and he, he makes this point pretty clear that perhaps later on there were these recall codes, but at least in the 1950s, this did not exist. And this was something that Kubrick, maybe it was there in the, in within the, the, the RAF force, and that was something where Red Alert had an idea there, but in the U.S. side, it wasn't there, uh, according to Bruce Blair, at least not until uh, the 1960s when they had these systems called uh, sealed authenticator systems would allow you to recall strategic bombers um but until then in the 1950s that did not exist at all so that was a pretty pretty serious issue and i think it underscored about how even more serious the situation was uh they were they basically were like ballistic missiles once they passed their failsafe point uh thank you for that last bit that's fascinating um this has been an amazing discussion um tim uh if my listeners want to find your podcast where should they go yeah, thank you. Uh, so we're called the Super Critical Podcast. Uh, we are uh, kind of everywhere, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud. Now we're on Spotify. And what we do is we talk about nuclear weapons and movies that have nuclear weapons, TV, uh, video games, board games, anything you imagine that has nuclear pop culture. We talk about it. We usually overanalyze it. It came from a feeling <laughs> of, you know, I would go to the movie theater and I would go see movies like uh, – uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and I would just yell at the screen saying, you can't abort a ballistic missile. Uh, and this was my creative outlet so that right. I would remain to have friends. Uh, so if you want to check that stuff out, it's all Super Critical Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. Uh, yeah, and I would love to, uh, to – also, I know I'm going to have Natasha on at some point. We're going to talk about potentially maybe an H.G. Wells book, uh, The World Set Free, right. which – which you talked about on one of your awesome episodes recently on atomic power, atomic nuclear weapons 101. Uh, so I want to get along, and our episodes are three hours long. So if you want this, but like three times longer, that's the place to go to. So thank oh you my very goodness. much. I really appreciate you having yeah. me. Yeah. Hey, Justin, um, any recent publications that uh, the listeners should check out that you've written? Oh, uh, well, th- thanks for the plug. Um, in Strategic Studies Quarterly, myself and a, a couple uh, other colleagues from the Center for the Study of WMD, we uh, have a uh, publication in the, it's the January issue, so it's, it's online, 
um, on uh, you know, covering things like deterrence. So uh, you can go there and uh, you can find other things that I've written uh, on the Center for the Study of WMD's website, which I'd recommend people to, uh, to check out. Uh, publications by WMD Girl, too. Uh, some great material there, uh, as well as uh, you can follow the Center's Twitter feed or you can follow my Twitter feed, Atomic Chess, uh, to find out, you know, things that are being written and, uh, hear me live or see me live tweet about things like the Carnegie nuclear conference from, from last, uh, last week, um, which was a lot of fun. Well, thanks guys for joining me this Sunday morning. Thanks for listening to the authors of mass destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.